Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. And it's great uh, to be able to speak to you today. It's um, the last time I'm speaking to you for the year because next week we've got carols, as you know, and Hugh's uh, going to be preaching here on Sunday evening. And then on the Monday, uh, Lynn and I and the family are off uh, for a month's holiday. So uh, we won't be here over Christmas. We'll be in the colds. Actually, we're going to be with my brother in Canada uh, for Christmas, which is really exciting. It's brilliant that we can be there. We're looking forward to that. Uh, but we'll certainly continue to pray for you guys. And so today, as uh, I've been praying into what to preach on, we finished our ACT series uh, last, last week, uh, which is a great series. I hope you're really encouraged by it. Uh, and I've just been praying into... What to, what to speak on, and obviously we've got Christmas coming up, it's kind of obvious to do a Christmas message, so started to uh, think along those lines and pray along those lines, and you know, there are lots of words that, uh, that we use at Christmas, I think we can see some of them, we hang them on our Christmas trees, uh, words like peace and joy uh, and love and Noel, you got those Simon, there we go, uh, Noel, does anyone know what that actually means? Anybody? I'm sure you got on your Christmas tree someone or on a Christmas card. Do you know what it means? No? No one knows what it means? Well, it just means the Christmas season or carol, actually, is what it means. So we have these words, and uh, we put them up, and they look decorative. So I was thinking, well, Lord, is it one of those kind of themes that you want me to preach on? And as uh, I was praying into that, I really felt God speak to me about a word that sits behind those, really, that, that sits behind all these things and what actually this season is about. And the word is forgiveness, forgiveness. It's not a word that we do see often hanging on our Christmas trees or up uh, on mantelpieces, but it is a key word. Because thankfully for us, Jesus came as a baby. He came to save the world not to judge the world. He came to bring forgiveness, not to bring judgment. And we read that right in the Nativity story. If we look at Matthew 1, uh, the angel speaking to Joseph, and it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. This is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And then Jesus said about himself, we read in John 12, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. We can be incredibly thankful that that is what Jesus came to do, that He came to save the world. Because our problem as mankind before Jesus came to the earth was that we were unable to fully restore our relationship with God. Even God's chosen people, the Israelites, had to follow laws and regulations. 
They had to do sacrifices to atone for their sins, and they were very limited. They could atone for specific sins that they had done. They'd have to go and sacrifice again, and today when I've blown it once more, then I've got to go and sacrifice again, and I have to follow laws and regulations. And even God's people, they, they, no animal sacrifice was enough for them to be totally forgiven. So Jesus, the Son of God, when He came, when He came and He died on the cross for us, His sacrifice is the sacrifice that enables us to be completely forgiven of all our sin. When we believe in Him, when we believe that His sacrifice of His perfect life was given for us, then we can know complete forgiveness. It's an amazing thing that as a result of His death and as we confess Him as Lord and Savior, we are then forgiven. And so we can know forgiveness in our lives. We can know complete release and total forgiveness from all our sin, past, present, and future. We can know total forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we need to take hold of that. But then what do we do with that and how do we live that out? How do we... What does it mean for us as how do we live on earth? How do we, uh, do we have to forgive others? How do we forgive them? What does forgiveness look like? And that's what I want us to look at this morning. And I think particularly at this time of year, uh, it's a great time, Christmas. We celebrate with family and friends. But it can also be a time when we become acutely aware of hurts from the past. We become acutely aware of things that have happened uh, in our past, things that have been said to us, or maybe even broken or unhealthy relationships that we have currently. And so I think it's a really appropriate time for us to be considering this whole area of forgiveness. It's a massive topic uh, and with many facets and pieces to it, but I want us to look at it um, fairly simply, asking three questions. And then we're going to give the Holy Spirit time to uh, work in us and shape us this morning. There are three questions I want to ask. They are, why forgive? What does forgiveness look like? And who should we forgive? So let's pray, and then we'll get into that. Lord, I thank you that you have forgiven us, that, Lord, as we confess you as our King and Lord that you forgive us of all our sin, that we can know freedom and joy, delight in you, that we can have a relationship with the Father restored. We are called sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you for the privilege of that. And I pray that you would help us now to live that out in our lives, Lord. Won't you come, Holy Spirit? Won't you speak to us? Won't you come, Holy Spirit, and illuminate areas of unforgiveness in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would come and set us free. Lord, we want to come into this festive time being free from things that hold us back. We want to move forward as a church being free from uh, things that hold us back. So we ask you to come right now, to come and reveal to us, to come and stir us, to come and encourage us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So why forgive? Two good reasons. The first one is a great reason because it's actually a selfish reason, and the reason is that it's good for us. Forgiving is good for us, and Jesus appeals to our self-interest when He says in Matthew 7, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. They're quite scary words, really. And then he also, in the Lord's prayers, he taught us to pray. There's a line, he taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We say it so easily because we, we know the words and we're used to saying it, but it should actually kind of catch in our throat as we forgive. We are forgiven as we forgive. Those are huge words. They're massively challenging words. But Jesus knows that our ability to forgive others has a far greater effect on us than on the person we are forgiving. The poison of unforgiveness eats at us, not the person that we are forgiving. And so to forgive is actually in our best interests, and Jesus knows that, and that's why He challenges us to forgive in that way. So it's good for us. The second reason is that Jesus commands us to. We see it right through the Bible, but just to look at two verses in Ephesians 4, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then Colossians 3, Bear with each other, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We are called as Christians to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's not an option for us as Christians. It's not an option to forgive. It's not an optional extra. It's not only when we feel like it, because the reality is we most probably won't feel like it. But we are called and commanded to forgive. So it's a clear command. We must forgive. We have no option as Christians but to forgive. And we all get plenty of opportunity to forgive people. Sometimes it's daily we have the opportunity to forgive people, whether that's in the workplace, whether it's in the traffic, certainly finding that around the new hospital being built, just more opportunity to forgive people as uh, we drive around there. In our homes, I know that I give Lynn plenty of practice in forgiveness because uh, uh, she has to forgive me again and again, and I'm sure you do in your families as well. Unfortunately, in the church as well, in this family, we often need to forgive, and so we have lots of practice to, to do this. And it's good for us to learn how to do it and to do it well. We may as well get used to it. We may as well learn how to do it really well. So let's consider what does forgiveness look like. <clears throat> I'm going to read, uh, I've drawn a lot out of this great book by R.T. Kendall called Total Forgiveness. Um, we were hoping to have it in the bookshop today, but it hasn't arrived in time. But uh, you can order it still. If you give your name to the bookshop, you'll still get that 25% discount. Uh, so it's a really excellent book. I encourage you to uh, put your name down for it and to order it. So Kendall says this. He says, The ultimate proof of total forgiveness is when we sincerely petition the Father to let off the hook those who have hurt us, even if they hurt those close to us. Let me read that again. The ultimate proof of total forgiveness is when we sincerely petition the Father to let off the hook those who have hurt us, even if they hurt those close to us. It's a huge, huge statement. A huge statement. To sincerely petition the Father 
to let them off the hook. There are many great examples of forgiveness that we see in the world. We can look at the story of Corrie ten Boom. You may know that story. If you don't, I encourage you to look it up online. You'll just be blown away. This lady in the Second World War, seeing her sister killed in the concentration camp and then brought face to face with one of those concentration camp guards and forgiving him in a very public way. Amazing story. We see someone like Nelson Mandela in South Africa, Bishop Tutu, bringing a country through, really, from what should have been a bloody revolution, bringing a country through in forgiveness. Uh, Amazing, amazing men and women who have learned the power of forgiveness. But the ultimate example, as we know, of forgiveness is certainly Jesus, and He needs to be our example, who while He was nailed to a cross, while he was being scorned, while he was being humiliated and tortured, his words were, Father, forgive them. Amazing example to us. So I want to look at four key elements of forgiveness of what it looks like. The first one is counting the cost. Counting the cost. See, God doesn't ask us to pretend that things haven't hurt us. He doesn't ask us to pretend that we're not disappointed, that we haven't been hurt, that things haven't been difficult. He doesn't ask us to pretend that, but He asks us to count the cost of the pain and hurt and still forgive. God doesn't approve of evil deeds. He doesn't uh, approve of evil and sin. He absolutely hates it. And so likewise, He doesn't ask us to approve of evil things that have been done. But He does ask us to forgive. It can be painful to consider and recognize what has been done for us. And our temptation, I think, is to repress it, to push it down. We just want to bury it and get on with our lives. And we just, let's just bury it and get on with it. And we can think, actually, we have forgiven, but in reality, all we've done is just push it away. We haven't actually dealt with it. We've just pushed it down. But God wants us to be free in this, and so He wants us to actually appreciate the cost and to count the cost of what has been done, what has been said to you, what has been done to you, the pain that you have felt. He wants you to actually know that and then to lay it at His feet and then to leave it there and forgive. He doesn't want us to live in it onwards and onwards, living in this pain, but He wants us to count it and then to put it at His feet and to leave it there. So I want to encourage you. We need to count the cost of pain that we have felt. God encourages us to do that, not to push it down, repress it, ignore it, but to count the cost. Secondly, The key element is choosing not to keep a record. 1 Corinthians tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. And in Hebrews 8, we read that Father God says that He will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. All records of our sin forgotten, remembered no more. The interesting thing about records is that we keep records to use them. You know, we keep historical records 
so we can see what's happened in the past. And I love history. I love looking at the historical record, what's happened in a country, what's happened uh, in different places. We keep financial records uh, so we know how much tax we have to pay at the end of the year because we've kept a financial record. We keep, uh, if, you, if you earn commission, you keep a record of the sales uh, that you've made so that you're going to be paid your commission. So we keep records to use them at a later stage. So are you keeping a record of wrongs? Because if you're keeping a record of wrongs, it means you're keeping it for some later use. You're keeping it for future use, which may be to uh, hurt the person who's hurt you in some way. We keep a record of wrongs to use it in some way. And forgiveness and love are a choice not to keep a record. They're a choice not to keep a record. Forgiveness starts as a choice. It is a choice. It's an act of the will to tear up the record of wrong. We have to, you see, we have to choose to destroy the record before it becomes enlarged in our hearts and has a chance to grow into bitterness and resentment, which acts as a poison in our life. That poison affects us spiritually, affects us emotionally, can even affect us Physically, it physically can make us sick. And so we need to choose, as I said, it's an act of the will to destroy that record, to not keep that record. <clears throat> I had a picture as I was writing this of a filing cabinet. And some people, you know, you're very organized. You keep a record of wrongs that is very organized. It's drawer after drawer, it's categorized, it's organized. You can turn to any record of wrong over the past however many years, and there it is. There are others of us that it's just a pile of papers. The other picture is just this pile of papers. They're all records of wrongs, they're not organized, but they're just a pile of papers, and something happens, and one of the papers kind of shuffles to the top, and, and there it is, and, and suddenly we're reacting in some way when something happens because there's this pile, record of wrongs. God wants us to destroy this record of wrongs. I felt actually that there was a, a draw for someone, I don't know why, I just felt this year, 1994. There's a whole draw of 1994 that means something to you. I feel like there was a paper that came up to the top of the pile which had something to do with singing. It was something to do with singing, where you've just been hurt to do with, with singing. I don't know if you weren't recognized or overlooked in some way. We need to choose not to keep a record of wrongs. Along with tearing up the record comes the choice to not tell people what someone has done to us. You know, when we keep this record, as I said, we can keep it with the purpose of throwing it out here and there to tell someone, uh, you know, this person's been so terrible to me. This person has said that to me. We want to start a smear campaign against the person who's hurt us. We want to paint them in a bag, bad light. We want to set people against them. That's not forgiveness. 
We don't want to unhelpfully expose to others what has been done to us. But having said that, we also don't cover up for them by excusing or justifying their behavior. As I said, God, God does not call us to justify their behavior. I want to be clear on two points when it comes to not telling people. Firstly, it's very helpful to confide in one or two trusted people when you've been hurt because they can help you through to forgiveness. So it's, it's important to do that. It's important to confide in one or two trusted people. The elders, pastors, leaders in the church are there for you to do that to you. Friends, family, people you can trust who will keep that to themselves I want to encourage you to do that. Secondly, it's imperative that we speak out when we're the victims of domestic violence, abuse, rape, or any other illegal activity that needs to be reported to the authorities. Forgiveness does not mean closing our eyes to those who will continue to harm us or harm others. Despicable acts such as domestic violence and child abuse must be exposed and dealt with. So when I'm talking about not telling people, I do not mean that. Those things need to be brought out into the open. They need to be related to the authorities. I want to encourage you, if you're in a situation of domestic violence or where things have been done to you, you need to speak out. But in other circumstances, we need to not keep the record. We need to choose not to tell what someone has done to us. Confide in one or two, but don't take it any further. The third key element of forgiveness is having mercy and grace. The essence of forgiveness is when we give up the natural desire to see the person who's hurt us get what's coming to them. That's our natural desire. We want, to want them to see, we want them to get what's coming to them. There's a song uh, in the charts at the moment by Pink. My kids laugh because I quite like the song and, and uh, I play it. It's got a really catchy tune, but it's called Revenge. <laughs> Not the right uh, song maybe for a pastor to be playing, but, um, but I do like the tune. But the words are interesting. These are some of the words. It says, like Leo in The Revenant, if you've seen the movie, like Leo in The Revenant, Abel in that Bible bit, revenge is sweet, isn't it? I really, really hope for it. I know that it won't fix a thing. I'm daydreaming. Let me count the ways, how I'll get you or how I'll make you pay. Babe, I'm hurting and now you'll feel the same. That's my plan, that's my plan, that's my plan. We could do revenge, 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 together, together, together. We can take revenge, 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 revenge is sweet. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> it's interesting, the line, I know that it won't fix a thing. Because it doesn't. You see, revenge actually is based on fear. Revenge is based on fear. It's the fear that the person who hurt you won't get the punishment or rebuke that they deserve. It can be the feeling that it's just so unfair that no one knows how horrible they've been to me, what they've said to me. And we want revenge. We want to be vindicated from what's been said to us. But God is very clear that vindication is His territory. And we read in both the Old 
and the New Testaments, God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Thankfully, as we've said, that as we turn to God and ask forgiveness and truly repent, that He shows us mercy and grace. He shows us mercy and grace. They're great words. Mercy is being that we don't get the punishment we deserve. That's what mercy is. We don't get the punishment we deserve. And grace is that we get God's favor that we don't deserve. So mercy, we don't get what we deserve. Grace, we do get what we don't deserve. God's love and favor. And we are called to show this grace and mercy as Christians. We are called to show mercy and grace to those who have hurt us. We call to choose not to punish someone for what they did to you, to show mercy and to show grace. Again, I want to note two things about not showing punishment. Firstly, as I said, this does not include remaining silent about violence and abuse. Secondly, I want you to note that discipline, godly discipline, is not against mercy and grace, but it is actually a key element of mercy and grace. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those He loves, and that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So godly discipline is a helpful thing. It's a helpful thing. And parents, church leaders, different settings where godly discipline is brought is part of grace. It's actually an act of kindness. The worst thing that God could do is leave us in our sin, is leave us as illegitimate children, as orphans, leave us uncared for. But He doesn't. He forgives and He disciplines, and He brings us through into holiness to be more like Him. His discipline is a sweet thing, as it says, not pleasant, but a good thing, something that brings us through into greater freedom. So while we mustn't want to punish, we must discipline. We need to be trained and taught, but we need to be a people that show mercy and grace in every situation. Fourthly, key element is that it's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. Let me read to you what Artie Kendall says. He says, total forgiveness must take place in the heart, for otherwise it's worthless. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12. If we have not truly forgiven in our hearts those who have hurt us, then it will come out sooner or later. But if forgiveness has indeed taken place in the heart, our words will show it. When there is bitterness, it will eventually manifest. When there is love, there is nothing in him to make him stumble.